T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. When the Obama Foundation this past week announced a five-year, $400 million fundraising campaign, including youth investment and South and West Side economic development, one of the key foundations signing on was the Chicago Community Trust. When the city of Chicago needed a leading partner for its Together We Rise plan for recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, it called on the Chicago Community Trust. So in this, a year when communities across the country are looking for support and ideas, what better place to turn here in Chicago than to the woman who leads that foundation? Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is Dr. Helene Gale, president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. The Trust is a more than 100-year-old organization that's one of the nation's top community foundations. And I'm sure Dr. Gale can explain what that means much better than I can. She's headed that foundation since 2017. Before that, Dr. Gale was the head of CARE, the humanitarian group. She spent two decades with the Centers for Disease Control. Yes, she's a medical doctor, not a PhD, unless you're counting her 18 honorary degrees. <laughs> she has worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and there's just not enough time to talk about everything she's done because there's so much to discuss about what she's doing now and will do. COVID-19 is still part of our lives and we are social distancing. This interview is being conducted via Zoom and uh, Helene Gale, welcome. Hi, it's great to be with you, Craig. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, calling the Chicago Community Trust a foundation isn't wrong, but it doesn't, I think, paint a complete picture. There's so much more that the trust does than raise and give money, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, and um, in some ways, the community foundation is a mix between a nonprofit um, that gets involved with the community and provides grants, but also we're a donor service uh, organization. We really um, are they're working with people who want to invest in their community. And so we have uh, generous donors who care about their region, who want to invest. And then we work very closely with partners in communities to use those resources in ways that can have the greatest impact. So we bring in dollars, we send dollars out, but I think we also you know, try to be um, a convener, a partner, uh, and really a, 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 a big force within the civic community 
to really work on the things that are the biggest challenges facing the region. And I, and I would think that the, the last couple of years have uh, proven that. And, and frankly, it's, I think, shed new light on the community trust itself. I mean, we have seen the trust partnering with the city and others uh, more often, correct? Yes, you know, and I think part of that um, comes from the new strategy that we launched uh, about uh, almost two years ago. When I came into the trust, we were more, t more traditionally uh, organized around sectors. So we, you know, we did a lot of really great things that I wish I could go through our 105 year history of all the things we've been involved in. But, you know, we've touched all of the major civic um, activities and initiative within our region. And we were kind of organized in um, silos. We funded housing, we funded education, we funded health arts and culture. And we still do those things, but we really have organized our work to focus on uh, one major priority, which is closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap. And I think as we have really organized our work around that issue, it's helped us to be uh, more focused, be able to talk about the impact that we wanna have in the long run. And I think it's also helped us to partner more because we're more specific about what we want to accomplish. And then we can work with partners towards a goal of really looking at this issue of greater economic equity here in the region. And, and I do want to talk about that. What was it that made you want to focus on that, the, uh, the wage and wealth gap, uh, as a priority from the very beginning, as soon as you walked in the door? Well, you know, it, it wasn't exactly as soon as I walked in the door because, you know, um, I came new to Chicago. I was new to the Community Foundation, and I really felt it was important for the first year that I got here to uh, step back and listen. And so, you know, we went on kind of a journey, a, a listening tour. We talked to people in communities. We talked with uh, partners, with, our, with uh, the public sector, the city, the county, et cetera and really trying to figure out where could we have the greatest sustained impact. And, you know, as you know, we have lots of issues. We have a um, life expectancy gap that's larger than almost any city in the nation. We have huge problems with public safety and violence, uh, lack of access to high quality education, disinvestment in neighborhoods, et cetera. But, you know, when we looked at these things and when we talked to people, it was really clear that underneath all of these issues, the root cause in many cases is really this wealth gap, this wealth inequality that exists in our region. And, you know, we also, you know, in a lot of the work that we have done, you know, recognize that it is really linked to a history of racial segregation and discrimination. And, you know, if we look at Black and Latinx households and communities relative to white, you know, this gap is pretty um, large and growing. And if you have a region where two thirds of your population are Black and Latinx and their economic opportunities and potential is being held back, we can't expect that the rest of the region um, is going to move forward. So, you know, we decided that as opposed to focusing on any one issue 
let's tackle the root cause or the fundamental root cause, which is this wealth inequality and recognize that it's also linked to the issue of racial equity and, and, and some of the issues around the racial segregation. So closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap is our highest organizational priority. And we believe if we can really make a dent in that, it will also have a huge impact on health, education, uh, violence, and all uh, many of the other uh, major challenges that we tackle here in the region. And, you know, I would just add that, it, you know, obviously, um, you know, it's it's the right thing to do. It is, you know, it is not just and fair to hold back the potential of, of uh, uh, parts of our population, but it's also the smart thing to do. Uh, you know, again, we can't expect that we're going to move forward when we're holding two thirds of our population's potential back. And, you know, there are other people who some of them say, not always out loud, that uh, narrowing the wealth gap is mostly about taking money from hardworking people who make it and giving it to people who don't work as hard and still want it. Uh, how do you get the rest of the population to understand it the way you feel it should be, that it is about everyone? Well, you know, this is not a zero-sum game. Um, you know, we all win if we can make sure that everyone has the opportunity to realize their full potential. And it's, you know, in, in the last year, we've seen several reports of Citibank, McKinsey, others who talk about the trillions of dollars that would be added back to our economy if we closed that racial and ethnic wealth gap. And it's the same here. We uh, helped to support a study from Metropolitan Planning Council that showed that seg the racial segregation that we have here in, in Chicago cost the city $4 billion uh, it, annually. So, you know, we're not talking about taking from some part of our population to help the other. We're talking about growing our economy. And, you know, Study after study has shown the impact, the negative impact on economic growth of having this kind of wealth gap. And it's also shown the positive that could accrue if we actually have that kind of economic equity and opportunity. It helps all of us. Uh, you know, again, this is not a zero sum game. This is something that would make a difference for our whole economy. And can you give me an example of how organizations, uh, foundations, and communities can substantively affect that gap, affect those systems that are keeping people apart? Yeah, well, it, it's a good, it, I'm glad you said systems because part of what, you know, we feel is so important is that we need to look at what are some of the systemic barriers as well as what are the ways in which we can work specifically with households and neighborhoods to increase the kind of investment that will make a big difference. So on one hand, you know, we look at kind of our programmatic initiatives where we're focused on things like uh, supporting small business ecosystem. We know that small businesses within uh, neighborhoods and within communities uh, end up not only being economic engines, but they also provide jobs. So we do a lot of work on helping to increase small businesses and, and growing small businesses. 
We also look at the, the investment in neighborhoods. Um, black and brown neighborhoods in Chicago have been hugely, there's been huge disinvestment. And um, we're really working to look at how do you spur investment in neighborhoods where there has not been um, equal investment. And you, you can look at study after study that shows you know, the, the loan rates within black and brown communities compared to white and how low they are, or housing uh, lending, mortgage lending, you know, et cetera, all the things that are important for investing in neighborhoods. So, you know, that's a big focus. Um, how do we work with residents to lift their voices so that they are at the table as decisions are being made and they can be actors in helping to bring this along. But we also wanna look at the kind of policies, the systems as you started to reference that have um, you know, held communities back. You know, We're excited that there was recently in the Illinois legislature, a law passed around predatory lending. In our communities, we know that payday lenders and predatory lenders who charge 300 plus interest rates uh, for families who are already economically insecure. Now there's a cap on that that says you cannot um, charge and get people into this spiral, downward spiral of debt. Uh, so, you know, looking at things like that earned income tax credit that puts dollars into people's hands to be able to help with financial stability. So we're looking at, you know, how do you shift policies? How do you take down some of the, the policy and systemic barriers? as well as how do we look at the things that can put money into people's pockets, um, build wealth and assets through small business, home ownership, and to spur uh, investment in neighborhoods where there has been uh, massive disinvestment. Has it been difficult to convince, especially lawmakers and, and, and others in power uh, to move in that direction? Well, you know, I think there's just so much evidence these days uh, of, of why, in fact, the closing this wealth gap is in all of our interests, that we're in a, in a time where I think we have a much more favorable policy environment than we have be before. And I will say that as unfortunate um, and as catastrophic as the COVID pandemic has been, it has highlighted some of these inequities in ways that has brought to people's attention um, you know, why we need to make these kinds of investments perhaps more than ever before. So, you know, I think there's a more fertile ground. And, and so it's why I'm actually quite optimistic that although we, this is quite an ambitious path that we have uh, decided to take, that there's really a lot that can be done today, both, uh, you know, in terms of how we invest our dollars, but also how we push and advocate for policy reforms and policy changes that can make a difference. You know, I often say it's bad policy that got us to where we are. If we look at things like redlining and other things, it really had such a huge impact. So if bad policies got us to where we are, good policies can actually be an important part of the solution. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore, and my guest is Dr. Helene Gale, President and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. And I want to talk a little bit more about what you just brought up, and that is the pandemic. Uh, here it comes, hitting the entire nation hard. But 
those conditions that, as you say, we've been trying to change uh, uh, caused COVID-19 to hit black and brown communities harder. So let's talk a little bit about how the Chicago Community Trust responded, because this in some ways shifted, if not your focus, it shifted how you do things uh, right at the beginning. Yes, sure. And, you know, I think it, it, um, in some ways it less than shifting, I think it amplified a lot of the things that we were already doing. And, you know, we did jump in very early and very uh, pleased that uh, partnering with the United Way of Metro Chicago, we were able to mount a fund to provide emergency relief to families who were hard hit by COVID particularly in, in black and brown communities. Uh, we were able to raise um, in just a short few weeks, $35 million that we then were able to get out very rapidly to communities for food, for shelter, to cash, to pay their bills. Uh, we also worked on a major project and provided resources to get broadband um, access so that children who were uh, having to learned from home, had access in many of the homes where there had not been broadband access. So, you know, we were able to jump in pretty quickly and the generosity um, was incredible. We had over 6,000 donors giving anywhere from $5 to a million dollars who all wanted to really um, contribute and make a difference during this, uh, during this pandemic. And then we really pivoted after um, you know, mounting the emergency response to really think about the recovery. And, you know, this is the We Rise Together initiative that we are, that we launched in October that really focuses on how do we make sure that the recovery from this pandemic is equitable and that people, families, neighborhoods that were already economically fragile and were so hard hit during this pandemic are not left behind as we recover. So We Rise Together is a collaboration of philanthropy, business, community, and nonprofits really focused on how do we make sure that this recovery is equitable and the communities that were the most hard hit um, have the opportunity to recover like the rest of the city. Well, let me ask you, how do you make sure that that happens when you're dealing with, if not limited resources, because you are getting a, you know, a lot of money in, but how do you make that work the way you need it to? I think one of the biggest things we want to be able to do through this initiative is to align resources. Um, while we're raising dollars and we expect that we will be able to raise significant uh, dollars for this initiative, we also know that there's a lot of work being done. There's a lot of work being done by the city and the county, uh, by businesses, by other organizations. And we wanna really work to bring all of that together so that we're putting our resources together in a holistic way to be able to make the biggest difference. You know, again, around the things that have been most hard hit, small businesses in black and brown communities, employment, employment opportunities, uh, you know, all of these are the kinds of things that we want to work on and investing in, in the infrastructure in neighborhoods that have been decimated. So we really want to work on 
all of these things in an integrated way, pooling resources in a way that can make the biggest difference. Can you give me a sense of first off how much money has been raised so far? And I and I know this is this is all in process, but yeah, so we've raised about thirty million dollars, um, and you know we're hoping that we can raise far more than that. You know, we know that if we look at the generosity of this region uh, in the emergency stage, and as I mentioned, we raised $35 million in a short uh, span of time, you know, we think that we can raise significant dollars, but it's not just the dollars that we raise. It's also working with businesses. How are they spending their resources? Can our major corporations look at how they're hiring and what neighborhoods they're hiring from? Are they spending their dollars with minority firms? Um, are they using minority suppliers? You know, so looking at all of those things and not just thinking about the dollars we raise, but all of the um, partners who have come to the table, how can they use their spend in ways that help to add assets in black and brown communities? How much of a challenge is it that we're in a, a changing landscape, even when it comes to business. I think there are probably a lot of businesses who don't know what their outlook is going to be, what the next year is going to look like. Not all of their workers may come back. Not all jobs may come back. Uh, how do you move forward when people aren't sure what the next step might look like? Well, you know, um, a lot of businesses have done quite well. And we know that, that, that in fact, um, you know, if you look at the economic forecast, uh, there's, there's a lot of optimism about bouncing back pretty quickly with the vaccine, um, you know, as rates of, of uh, new infections are going down. And so I think there's a lot of cause actually for optimism about our economy. Um, in some portions of it. And what we want to do is to make sure that it's not just some portions that recover well, but that it's everyone. And that those communities that were the most hard hit don't get left further behind. So I think, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of reason for optimism, but I think we all have to think smarter. We have to think about what are the industries and what are the kinds of jobs that are um, crisis proof, if you will, how are we thinking about some of the low wage earners and building some of the safety nets? One of the things I think that we saw through this pandemic is that you know we don't have the kind of social safety nets that so many other countries have. And as a result of that, we let the bottom fall out of our economy. And I think there's, again, in the public policy arena, a lot of things that we can do to make sure that we shore up our base, if you will, so that when the next crisis comes, which we know there will be one, you know, we're more resilient, we can bounce back better, and we can bounce back as a full community, not just some segments of our community, but really look at what is it going to take to be able to be crisis-proof, if you will, and more resilient um, as, a, as a community, as a region. Another thing that strikes me that we might have to go over, you can tell me if you think it's, it's much of a challenge, is that even as the inequities of society were amplified by COVID-19, I think a lot of people also felt more of an alienation from government, a distrust of government, because we not only dealt with that, but we dealt with the, uh, 
the problems, not just with healthcare, but also policing, demonstrations, and and such, so that it still seems as if there are people who feel if, as if they're being left out, even when it may not be as bad as it as it feels. How do you deal with that going forward and getting people to have the confidence in government to to feel that yes, people are here to help us? Well, you know, um, government, just like any other sector of our society, has to earn that trust. And the best way to earn trust is to keep promises. And so, you know, I think that um, clearly we've seen a major change at the national level with a new administration that has demonstrate, demonstrated a commitment to issues of equity. And I think those um, things really do make a difference and leadership does matter. And so I think the fact that we have a, a different um, leadership at a, at a national level will also impact what happens at the state and the local level. Here on the local level, you know, I think, uh, again, trust has to be earned. There's a lot of issues to and a lot of challenges, but I think it's also all of our responsibility to make government accountable and responsive to our needs. So, you know, it's not a one-way street. We all have a role to play. We need to lift our voices. You know, it's part of why one of the components of our strategy is around building collective power. How do you build that base of power at the community level so that people can hold their elective uh, officers accountable, so that they can make their voices heard and that they can change the narrative about their communities so that people understand that our communities are full of assets, not just deficits. And so, you know, I think how we build community power and how we build the voices of community is a huge part of how we build that trust and bond with government and have that kind of two-way street, government um, fulfilling its responsibilities but, but citizens being at the table to make sure that we can hold our governments accountable. That's how I think we build trust. And moving forward, what do you see as the remaining challenges that you have to overcome in order to, uh, to reach these goals? You know, um, I guess the biggest challenge is that there's only 24 hours in a day. That, <laughs> that, seems, that seems to be my biggest challenge. But, you know, I guess really um, there is no one answer. Um, you know, I, I was in a panel the other day and, and somebody said, um, you know, equity is a grind. And what he meant by that is that, you know, this is hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. It, we didn't get to where we are overnight. Uh, some may say, you know, it's been 400 years in the making. But, you know, clearly, I think we have an opportunity today because of uh, people's recognition of how inequity hurts us all. Uh, there's a wonderful book uh, by a young woman, Heather McGee, that talks about. Um, you know, the sum of us, and she talks about how racism hurts all of us. And, you know, I think we're coming to that recognition as a nation um, and as a community here that racism doesn't just hold back black and brown people, indigenous people, it holds back our whole society. And I think when we start recognizing and leaning into the importance of equity 
and how it actually helps all of us. This is not a zero sum game. We all win um, if, you know, if we all win and if we're all in this together and if we all have the opportunity to realize our full potential. So I just, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I'm an eternal optimist or I wouldn't do the things that I've done in my lifetime. I believe you can change people's minds. I think you can also change policies and I think you can change the conditions that allow people to realize their full potential and recognize the, the opportunity that should be afforded to all of us. Well, we are going to end on that optimistic note, and, and I thank you very much for that. That is uh, Chicago Community Trust CEO, Helene Gale. Thank you so much for spending the half hour with us. Uh, My pleasure. Our, it has been really our pleasure. And uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. There should be a link at the bottom of the homepage. You can also find our podcasts on odyssey.com. That is a new name for you to remember, A-U-D-A-C-Y, odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue. I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.